0: Look at these three words written larger than the rest, with a special pride never written before, or since tall words proudly say, we the people. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. It's the finest podcast in all the land.
1: You're stealing my lines and adding your own. But, yeah. um,
0: that that's, anyway. that's from someone who doesn't listen to podcasts.
1: Yeah, that's true. In fact,
0: I've only listened to two of them and I didn't like the one of the ones I listened to. The other one was this one and it was okay.
1: All right, fair enough. <laughs> anyway, as you said, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Trujillo. I'm the lead writer for the Lex Rex
0: Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute and I'm a constitutional attorney, although I won't be speaking in that capacity today. Before we begin, please note
1: that Nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice, and all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, not necessarily the opinions of the LexRex Institute.
0: The LexRex Institute is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X.org. And, and we should mention, too, Lexrex is Latin for the law is king. Because we believe that the law is our highest sovereign. You know, the law is preeminent over your boss, your kids, teachers, legislators, governors, president, everybody in this country. Because the law is king. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of which, David, I love what you're wearing today.
1: Oh, thank you, thank you. I feel like you know you kind of have to say that since it's you know. Our T-shirt, but I appreciate it.
0: Is it that's? I thought it was your T-shirt.
1: <laughs> Fine, it's a T-shirt that the Lex Rex Institute. Is it the people's T-shirt? No, um, it's not. It's I no. Mean, it's it, th- this specific T-shirt belongs to me. But. So
0: David is wearing a very handsome and <laughs> very appealing T-shirt that says Lex Rex Institute on it, and on the front, it's got a quotation saying that. Uh, stand up a bit, David saying that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty, which is true. We've got to be eternally vigilant to maintain the freedoms that we all enjoy. So if you want to advertise the fact that you believe that too, you can check out our website, lexrex.org, and click on store, and you too can become the proud owner of one of our T-shirts. Every contribution of $25 or more comes with a reward of a free T-shirt or a free book.
1: Yeah. So... Please go check that out. That's new, relatively new. Anyway, we just got that part of the website up and running very recently. Thanks to Kristen who worked on that, but yeah, go yeah, ahead. Huge and shout check out, that, out.
0: That, that was a lot of work to get that up and running.
1: Yep. And while you're there, but, we would like to mention too, because apparently we have not done a very good job of making it clear on this podcast. What some of the other stuff we do is we also have a YouTube channel that you can check out. Those videos are those, also hosted. Yeah, those are really
0: great. Uh, Those videos include our live events. Uh, We record a lot of our live events, not all of them, but some of the live events that we go to. They include my weekly Ask an Attorney series, although I didn't do that last week. I had too busy of a Friday that day. And they also include, you know, a few hearings, things like that. And then probably our strongest content is going to be our actually produced educational videos. We strongly encourage you to look at those. You can learn about your constitutional rights there.
1: Yeah. Like, you know... YouTube is the main platform for that, but those videos are also available on Vimeo and Rumble. Basically, you know any major video platform. If you search LexRex Institute, you can probably find us. Yeah, we've had we've
0: had some trouble facing censorship on YouTube, so we want to make sure our bases are covered here. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, unjust censorship, of course. In yeah. fact, they admitted it was unjust, and then they removed the video anyway. But that's a whole subject. If you want us to get into that, let us know. Otherwise, we're not going to get too deep into that today.
1: Yeah. Anyway, with our very natural, very smooth, very, you know, silky, cool plugs out of the way, why don't we get down to business? <laughs> we, we,
0: should, we should talk about the books, though. So oh, fair we point, know yeah. that people really want information about our legal tradition and our history, where we come from, where our laws come from, what they're based in. And we're hoping to expand the selection of books as time goes on, but for now... We've got three basic selections that you can look at. We can strongly recommend every one of these books as one that is, how do we want to say that, like right?
1: <laughs> uh, you could just say strongly recommend all of them. You know,
0: As books that are correct and books that will teach you a proper and accurate account of America's legal foundations, those books currently include... A book by Justice Neil Gorsuch, his book called *A Republic, If You Can Keep It*, and then a few way older ones. One of them is Locke's Second Treatise on Government, or was it was it both treatises, David, or just the second?
1: Both treatises. I thought it was important that we. Perfect.
0: Okay, because that first treatise nobody ever reads it. It's actually, I think, I don't want to say the more important of the two, but the second one really depends on it. It's undermining the idea of the divine right of kings and establishing the concept that the authority rests in the people political authority is derived from the will of the people yeah uh, so yeah you can read both of those there and then we've also got one that just includes our constitution declaration of independence and a few other important founding documents all of which we can solidly put the lex rex stamp of approval upon so check that out again it's lexrex.org it might be slash store but it, you can go to the website click on the store
1: we should emphasize you're not actually buying these things you're making a donation these are a free gift
0: want to so it's tax deductible yeah. Anyway, and we'll we'll fight that in court if the IRS doesn't like it. Anyway, so you, you don't have to worry about not getting your tax deduction. We'll we'll worry about it and we'll fight the battle if it comes.
1: Yeah. All right. That's so, not legal
0: advice. <laughs> no. I think do we make our disclaimer about nothing in this podcast constitutes legal We education? did, but as always Well, great. You know, then I can say that. We
1: we we reemphasize <laughs> it later. Don't listen to a podcast for legal advice. You can listen to our podcast for legal education, but if you have a specific situation that you want to deal with, please consult an attorney, that could be us, but it can't be us through this podcast.
0: No, no, in fact, if we ever do a section where we have callers and whatnot, but to make that clear, that's not a consultation.
1: Right, right.
0: Yeah. Anyway. Uh, one thing I wanted to clarify about last week before we take off, last week we discussed the habeas corpus rights for Elephant's case, Happy the Elephant in New York. I just wanted to make it clear, you know, we were pretty critical of the idea of animal rights in that segment of our podcast, and I think rightly. I don't want anybody to confuse that with being critical of the idea of animal welfare animal welfare is totally unrelated to the concept of animal rights you know i believe that we have certain obligations to be responsible in how we treat nature how we treat animals but that's totally separate from saying that human rights ought to devolve upon them i just wanted to make that clear you know i love animals you know david can tell you I'm i'm an animal lover and you know i think mistreatment of animals is unconscionable so For anybody who took it that way, I don't know that anybody did. I just wanted to be clear about that.
1: Yeah, fair enough. Anyway, we should get to it because, well, you know, we'll get into that. Actually, the reason that ended
0: up getting cut last week is we barely made it under our maximum time threshold, and it just had to go on the cutting room floor. So I figured I'd say it now.
1: Yeah, and we also, you know, we had a certain slate of topics planned for this week. The Supreme Court really threw a wrench in all that with some yeah, massive Yeah, no kidding. If, if, only, they'd, if only they'd
0: indicated ahead of time that they were going to be ruling the way they did this week, you know, that would have been really helpful. Well, you're being
1: a little, a little ironic there, but we didn't know that these <laughs> decisions were going to come down this week. We had planned for a much sort of calmer, more, you know, niche sort of. And we only sort of knew about topics. one
0: of them, to be fair. And it yeah. is a little bit different from the draft opinion.
1: Yeah, and we'll get into all that in a minute, but before we get to the main topics for this week, which, you know, if you're paying attention to the news, you can probably guess at least one of them. It's going to be the Dobbs case, and the other... That is again, the case
0: that overturned Roe v. Wade, for those of you who are not great with names.
1: Yeah, and the other case, which, to be frank, I keep forgetting the name of it, but it, the case that dealt with New York's concealed carry laws, something v. Bruin, I, th- I think. It's the
0: New York Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, I believe, or some, yep. some such organization. That yeah, might just, not just be checked. Exact name.
1: Just checked, you are correct. So we'll be getting into those in a minute, but first things first, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, this is going to be the first edition of our Supreme Court Hall of Shame.
0: Yeah, so we've got two really good decisions we're going to talk about later in the show. we got to balance that out, right? So we got to have a really <laughs> bad decision first.
1: Yeah. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this concept, we are going to be reviewing some of what we consider to be the worst reasoned Supreme Court decisions. This isn't necessarily about producing bad effects or you know yeah. supporting bad political. Opinions. If you
0: watched our episode a couple of weeks ago, you know that we are not legal consequentialists. We do not judge an opinion on its outcome. Frankly, we don't really care about that. Because that's not what the law is about. The law is about things that are specifically written down based on clear, coherent standards. So we're going to be judging these on the basis of their legal reasoning, not just decisions we don't like for whatever practical effect they have.
1: Right. And to clarify, listened to, because as we've said before, this is an audio format. You don't watch it.
0: Well, you could. You could watch the little <laughs> bar scroll across.
1: I guess you could if you were the world's most boring person. <laughs> anyway, let's get right well, into they're it. They're one though. of
0: our listeners. You don't know. Let's get right into. It. I'm not <laughs> well, supposed to insult my only the. I should probably cut all of that.
1: Probably, yeah. <laughs> you know, in case we decide to leave this in, though, we're talking about all of the other listeners, not you specifically. Whoever listening <laughs> to this, not you specific you're Listener, a, you're a very fun <laughs> and exciting person.
0: You would never watch a bar scroll across the screen. In fact, yeah. I don't think any of our listeners would do that. So make not sure not. that we're actually insulting anyone. Yeah.
1: <laughs> anyway, but. Why don't you take it away on first edition of the Supreme Court Hall of Shame? Yeah, so
0: to take us down from the little bit, because we're actually recording this on Friday the 24th. So we just learned about the Dobbs decision today. So to take us down from that little bit of an emotional high that we're on, we're going to look at one of the low points from the court in recent years. And the case that we're going to look at, you might have heard of it. It's a little case called... National Federation of Independent Business v. Sibelius, the 2012 case. And you might be familiar with this one as the case that created what I like to call Robert's Care. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I call it Robert's familiar. Care because it, yeah. it's not Obamacare. It's not the same thing that was passed by Congress and signed by the president. Well Why isn't it the same thing that was passed by Congress and signed by the president? Well, because Robert's changed it, specifically the provision in question in Sibelius was what they call the single payer mandate, which mandated that anybody who did not buy health insurance according to the provisions of that bill had to pay a penalty. And the Supreme Court heard the constitutionality of this issue, the issue went before the court and the court decided that, so this single payer mandate was challenged essentially on commerce clause grounds. And if you've watched some of our past videos or listened to our podcasts, You probably know a little bit about the Commerce Clause by this point, but most things, if the federal government wants to do them, they do them under the Commerce Power. So Commerce Power, Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution says that Congress has the power to regulate commerce between the states. So most of the time, if they wanna show that Congress can pass a particular regulation, they have to make some sort of argument that that thing either is or substantially affects commerce. And the argument that was made by the petitioners in this case was that The decision not to buy something has never been ruled to be commerce by the court. You know, everything else in the world's been ruled to be commerce. A guy (laughs) growing his own wheat on his own land for his own consumption was ruled to be interstate commerce. In another case that ought to be the subject of the Hall of Shame one week. That'll definitely end (laughs)
1: up on this series at some point. You can look forward to that. But what's
0: never been ruled to be commerce is a decision not to buy something, which is what is being penalized in the but at the time was being called the Obamacare Law.
1: The Affordable Care the Act.
0: The court looks at this issue. What's that, David?
1: The Affordable Care Act, to give it its, you know, more official title.
0: Yes. Yeah, correct.
1: You make it affordable by taxing people who don't want to buy it.
0: Yeah, that's that's how you make something more affordable. You make people pay money when they don't want it. Yep. Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> you know, go figure. But anyway, what Roberts ends up saying in the opinion that he writes, this is a John Roberts opinion, and I do want to call him out for this, because if you've got an opinion in the Supreme Court Hall of Shame, I think that people deserve to know what your name is, and (laughs) he came out pretty well on the two opinions that came out this week, so I think he can stand a little bit of criticism here. But what he ends up saying is, hey, you know what, guys? This isn't actually a commerce issue at all. We're not going to uphold this under the Commerce Clause. We're going to uphold it as a tax. As Mm -hmm. a congressionally created tax. So even though this law describes the single payer mandate as a penalty, Roberts says that's not true. It's actually a tax. And the question at that point becomes, well, is it a constitutional tax? And that leads Justice Roberts into one of the most perplexingly incoherent sections in Supreme Court history. So bold words, but go on. Yeah, but go ahead and listen to this. So what he says, even if the taxing power enables Congress to impose a tax on not obtaining health insurance, so questioning whether or not they can impose a tax on that, any tax must still comply with the other requirements in the Constitution. Plaintiffs argue that the shared responsibility payment, that's the single payer mandate, that's the same thing, does not do so. And they cite Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4, that provides no capitation or other direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. So, do you want to explain what that means, probably? Yeah, you section? should probably
1: you should probably detail what, a, what capitation means.
0: Yeah, that, that, that just means you count heads in each of the states. So, ordinarily, federal government can't tax people directly. They cannot tax you and me, the actual citizens, unless they do so in terms of the population of each state. In other words, if state A has 10 people and state B has 20 people, you can tax state A $10, you can tax state B $20. It's gotta be based on the number of people in each state. That's all that means. So what do we call that? Often called a head tax. That means that you can tax each person the same. So those are the only kinds of direct taxes the constitution allows and that's obviously that's going to be pre 16th amendment 16th amendment allows for income taxes but Roberts doesn't even get into a discussion on that because obviously not buying health insurance isn't income so it's got to meet the requirements of article 1 section 8 clause 4
1: yeah some so, other kind of tax
0: <laughs> yeah it's got to be that's that's the only other kind of tax that's allowed is a direct tax that's levied in direct proportion to the enumeration of the census yeah so Roberts goes on and he says According to the plaintiffs, if the individual mandate imposes a tax, it is a direct tax and it is unconstitutional because Congress made no effort to apportion it among the states. In other words, they didn't make sure that each state was paying an amount proportional to its number of citizens. Because more people in Texas might decide not to buy health insurance than people in Maine, for instance. So it's it's, it's virtually impossible that it would work out to being a tax that's in proportion to the census. So. He's saying, plaintiffs say that it's wrong for that reason. Then he goes on. And, and importantly, what I should say here is there's about three paragraphs in between these these two different sections that I'm going to read, where he goes into the history of what's been considered a direct tax at various times. I think probably trying to distract from his actual legal reasoning here. But here's his conclusion of the whole section. And he says... Or maybe he distracted himself from it. I don't know. Maybe that's, he's not trying. If you don't, you don't want to attribute false motive, right? Maybe he just lost track of what his argument was. I suppose that's possible. But yeah. here's the conclusion of his argument. He says, a tax on going without health insurance does not fall within any recognized category of direct tax. It is not a capitation. The whole point of the shared responsibility payment is that it is triggered by specific circumstances, earning a certain amount of income but not obtaining health insurance. The payment is also plainly not a tax on the ownership of land or personal property. The shared responsibility of payment is thus not a direct tax and must be apportioned among the several states. Who sees the problem here? (laughs) Let, Let me just summarize the argument for you. So if you look at what Robert's argument is here, what he says is that if this law imposes a tax, it is a direct tax and it's unconstitutional if it's not, levied in proportion to the enumeration of the census. Then you jump down to his conclusion. What he says is, this tax isn't levied in proportion to the census. Therefore, it's not a direct tax.
1: I really wish you would run some of these things by me before you do them.
0: (laughs) What's the problem here?
1: I did not approve of a a studio laugh track. (laughs)
0: What's what's the problem here with what Roberts is saying?
1: Well, basically, you know, he's saying for this to be permitted, it has to be a a direct tax because that's the only constitutionally authorized form of tax. The Constitution
0: only allows direct taxes, and it defines direct taxes that are permissible as taxes levied in proportion to the the census. Yep. This is not levied in proportion to the census. (laughs) Right. Therefore... And then he concludes it's not a direct direct tax. tax. What should he have concluded there?
1: That it's an unconstitutionally formed direct tax.
0: That it's not constitutional. Yeah. Because those are the only taxes that are constitutional. If it turns out that it isn't a direct tax, then it's got to be some other kind of permissible tax. And he hasn't shown that. Right. It's sort of a sleight of hand. We talked about this a few weeks ago. It's called... Begging the question. Begging the question. He reasons (laughs) in a circle. He assumes... His conclusion in his premise, it is laughably absurd, and he ought to be ashamed of what he did. And actually, you know, my colleague and co-worker, John Eastman, actually called for John Robert's resignation the day after this opinion came out, because it's frankly beneath the dignity of anything a justice should write. And you a know, little bit of insider stuff here. John Eastman was looking at this. He actually clerked for Clarence Thomas back in the, the 90s, and he was looking at this, and If you read the dissenting opinion in this case, it doesn't read like the language of Alito. It doesn't read like the language of Clarence Thomas. It doesn't read like the language of Scalia, any of the other conservative justices on the court at the time. It reads like John Roberts wrote it. And it doesn't read like a dissenting opinion. It reads like a majority opinion. And then at the very end says, because of these things, we disagree with the majority opinion. There's a pretty good argument here that Roberts changed his opinion at the very last minute on this. And you can have your own opinion about what his motivation for that would have been. I think that there's probably a pretty good argument here that there was political pressure on the court not to rule this way. You know, you could just you could see the slogans already. It's you know Bush v. Gore, Citizens United, now this.
1: Yeah. And I think that this is another one of those sorts of decisions that we sort of alluded to in the past where the court took it upon itself to kind of make up for deficiencies in the way Congress had drafted something. And this, this to me has all the, the hallmarks of that where, you know, yeah. basically the opinion looks at it and says, well, it can't be what it actually purports to be, which like you said, was a penalty because there's no constitutional basis yeah. for, for sure. implementing that.
0: You're right. There's a, there's a couple major problems in this decision that I do want to separate. First one is that, yep. just frankly, first-level logical error, You know, one that you should never make as a trained attorney, let alone a judge, let alone a justice of the Supreme Court. And that's just kind of unforgivable. Second one is that it basically redrafts the law for Congress. Yeah. What you should do when Congress has drafted a law improperly and it can't meet constitutional muster is you should send that law back to Congress to be redrafted. Yeah, should rule it unconstitutional and say Congress can change the law. Here's how they'd make it constitutional. Right. You shouldn't do it for them. That's not your yeah. job as a judge.
1: Right. And that's, well, you know, I guess spoiler alert, we'll get into that a bit when we talk about the Dobbs opinion. Because-
0: yeah, so all this to say, you know, we should all laugh at, justice roberts on this so let me play the laugh track again it won't play i'm sure you're grateful for that david yes i am i think maybe but we're we laughing on get, the inside laughing on that, the inside
1: that clip from game of thrones with that like nun type lady saying shame shame
0: that's not bad get that for next week
1: <laughs> i'll see if i can find that
0: yeah i think that's pretty good shame yeah shame
1: yeah. shame on you <laughs> All right. All right. So with that out of the way, we have to go into the first of our two main cases for this week.
0: Two good cases. Yeah. On which, you know, Justice Roberts, he's not always kind of a dunce like this. He often makes good decisions. And though he didn't write the opinion in either of the cases we're going to look at, he did come out on the right side. So, you know.
1: It was a very nice golf club.
0: All right. Yeah.
1: All right. So first up, we're going to talk about. Anyway, that, that's, the,
0: why, that's why I call the law Robert's Care, and I encourage you to do the same.
1: Okay. All right. We're going to move on now to the New York case. I'm going to forget the name again, so let me pull up the caption. New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Inc. v. Bruin, who is the superintendent of New York State Police.
0: Yep. That's a case.
1: Yep. Yeah. Yep. Now, I have not had a lot of time to read this opinion, I, so I know very little about the specifics. I do know that basically this was a challenge to New York's law that requires anyone applying for a license to carry a concealed weapon to have basically a specific reason why they feel it's necessary to yeah. defend themselves. Beyond, they have to show need. It's yeah, got to be a showing just, of need. And And specifically beyond just general self-defense purposes. So it has to be a specific reason beyond just, like, a gun would help keep me safe.
0: Usually, and this is what it is in most states, I think it's what it was in New York, too, some kind of threat to your person. You have to show that you're in danger and you need a gun to be able to protect yourself.
1: Yeah. Someone's been threatening you or has a history of threatening you or, you know, something. You have some concrete and ultra-specific reason why you feel threatened.
0: Six states required this prior to this ruling. Uh, My state, California, was one of them. You know, if there's a gun law, there's a good chance that California and New York are going to have that particular law. They're probably the two of the most anti-Second Amendment states in the country. But this case goes before the Supreme Court. Court rules in an opinion written by Justice Thomas that the constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. And he goes on. The exercise of other constitutional rights does not require individuals to demonstrate to government officers special need. Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense is no different. New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms in public. So requiring people to show need to exercise a constitutional right Is not constitutional because that's not a right. If you have to grant license to do something, it's not a right. Yeah, I think there's.
1: This is actually probably a topic we should devote a full episode to, or, you know, the main segment of an episode anyway, but I think a lot of people have a very strange idea of what a right is, and have sort of lost sight of the idea that... It's
0: the opposite of a wrong.
1: <laughs> well, there's that aspect in which we did talk about, but <laughs> basically, if something is a right, if it's a, you know, a political right that you have, you can't be deprived of it without, at the very least, without, you know, without extraordinary... Without process. Yeah, yeah. Extraordinary circumstances, typically, yeah, like, you know, yeah.
0: You know, if you violate... If you go out and kill somebody... They can deprive you of your right to liberty. They can even sometimes deprive you of your right to life. You have to have a trial beforehand. Somebody has got to find that you're, in fact, guilty of murder, and then they can deprive you of those things.
1: Yeah. And, you know, equivalently, if you have a right to bear arms and you need to establish a special reason why you can exercise that, that's very similar to saying you need to demonstrate a reason why you have a right to liberty, why we can't just preemptively put you in house arrest or something.
0: They don't. The government does not need a reason why I need to bear an arm in public. Yeah, that's not something that it that's within their authority to ask. And this was recognized by the Supreme Court. This comes sort of on the heels of the Heller decision, which is really the first decision in our history to recognize that there is a personal right to keep and bear arms. It is not merely. I don't know what else it would be. I mean, I guess they argue we say in one of our past podcasts, they argue that it was just a right for the state militia. but That's just a blatant misreading of the amendment. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, the Second Amendment has far more unequivocal terms than pretty much any other. You know, even even free exercise of religion says Congress shall pass no law respecting an establishment of religion and prohibiting free exercise thereof. But you look at the right to keep and bear arms, it just says shall not be infringed.
1: Right now. I this was I didn't take this one down for our hot take segment, although I could have partly I did that because it was another Twitter thing. And I know you're You know, for whatever reason, you don't like it when I have them from Twitter.
0: No, it's just—it's not that. It's just that I don't (laughs) like all of them being from Twitter.
1: Yeah, but
0: I guess this was—you know—home of the twits.
1: (laughs) But this was this was a new one on me where someone was arguing that the Second Amendment does not recognize a right to own arms.
0: That was actually that's that's the so we talked about that California the Ninth Circuit decision. That came out earlier this year, where California was arguing essentially that very thing, that all they had done was restricted the ability to purchase arms, not the ability to own them. Well, this was the
1: opposite. It was saying you had, like, that keep and bear is not the same thing and does not include the right to own. What bearing
0: the somebody else's arms?
1: Well, I think the the idea that they were trying to get at is only like, while in uniform or while you know in the capacity of a member of a militia. May you have a weapon.
0: But that's not what the Constitution says.
1: Right. And I'm just saying, in some ways, I feel like the the fact that you're—I think you're right, that in many ways the Second Amendment is probably the most spelled out, the most plainly stated.
0: Yeah, it's— Probably— All all the rest of them are conditioned on something.
1: Yeah, in this case, it may may have— it shall not be infringed it may inadvertently <laughs> push someone past that point would been like obsessed with the idea well it does it it says keep and bear and those are very specific things so blah 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 but I, I can't imagine. Yeah, that, like, so
0: that's like you know early in the 20th century when they were looking at some of the wiretapping cases and they looked at the Fourth Amendment which says you have the right to be secure in your persons houses, papers and effects. Yeah. and they said, what's a wire that's not a person, it's not a house, it's not a paper, it's not an effect. Yep. That's a pretty absurd argument in my mind. Persons, houses, papers, and effects is pretty clearly an exhaustive list that refers to all the stuff that's yours.
1: Right. And I I cannot understand how someone could keep, have a right to keep something without having the right to own it. And, you know, even if you didn't um, Yes, keeping something
0: presumes that you already owned it. Yeah. Because it, keeping means that you continue to own it.
1: Right. And also, like, you know... I mean, OK, so you inadvertently acquire a weapon somehow. You don't legally own it. It's not property or whatever. But once you have it in your possession, shouldn't you, in theory, also be allowed to keep it then? Like, no yeah. one should be able to take it away from you, right? Did you look at Justice um,
0: Breyer's dissenting opinion in this case?
1: I did not. I, like I said, I, I barely had any time to go over this case. So unfortunately, I'm, I'm pretty sketchy on the details. But maybe you can fill me in.
0: It's, you know, It's almost entirely political. It's there's very little legal analysis in it, which is kind of what you could expect. It's just it's ironic to me that you keep getting people claiming how political this new court is. Yeah. But if you read the opinions, it's not. They're they're very clearly deciding on the basis of what the law actually says.
1: Yeah. And I think reading between the lines and again, this may be a little ungenerous, but reading between the lines, I think it seems like when a lot of people say some that the court is too political, what they mean is, the court isn't abiding by
0: My some, politics. Vague,
1: well, some vague sense of the status quo. And so yeah. I think there's... Well, a, and
0: th- that actually, you know, they could say that the court is not being restrained. It's not yeah. exercising judicial restraint. What they would really mean, if you watch our episode about judicial philosophies, is they would mean the court is not being minimalist in right. its approach. Yeah. But as we noted in that episode, I don't think judicial minimalism is at all a valid philosophy. So... There's that. <laughs> now, the comment that I've heard over and over again about this case, and it's a comment that really irks me, so I want to comment on it here, but people keep saying this decision flies in the face of public opinion. Yeah, public opinion is that guns need to be restricted, and this opinion flies in the face of that. Yeah. I I frankly couldn't care less about public opinion on this. You know what? Even I'll go a step further. I'll go a step further than that. Even if you could definitively prove to me that by banning guns or restricting guns or creating need requirements for getting concealed carry permits, even if you could conclusively prove that doing this would reduce gun crime, in fact, eliminate gun crime, somehow magically, this law is going to be one that's respected by criminals. Usually criminals don't really care about the laws, but this one they do. You somehow magically manage to write one where criminals are like, I'm going to follow that all the time. And gun crime goes away. There's no more gun crime because we have these laws now I don't care the Second Amendment says shall not be infringed yeah and that ought to be sufficient yeah
1: you know and we've we've talked about this concept at least in one of our videos from a while back now but I, I think you know we've probably talked about this elsewhere as well until and unless, the Constitution is amended so as to yeah, if you to don't like it,
0: you can amend it.
1: Yeah, so as to eliminate the Second Amendment, it's not a legally valid option just to pretend it doesn't exist or to pretend that it has qualifications that it plainly doesn't. But you here's could amend the thing. it.
0: You know, as, as much as they want to talk about how the public— this flies in the face of public opinion, and people don't agree with this, they, they know that there is not sufficient political will to get an amendment on this. They no. know they don't have this, the political will to get rid of the Second Amendment. That's why all they do is complain rather than trying to get that amendment.
1: And, you know, it's an irony, too, that most of those people are likely the same people decrying the political nature of the court. Yes. And their solution to that is that the court should just bow to political opinion, but only selectively where it benefits them.
0: Yeah. But anyway, whether or not this goes against public opinion could not be less relevant. Whether or not gun laws are effective could not be less relevant. The Constitution is a very, very clear on this point. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah. If you don't like it, you can change it, folks. Yep.
1: No. It, but until
0: I, then, you got to follow it. That's integral to the rule of law in this country. And, and in my view, that is the only relevant consideration when it comes to Second Amendment questions. We have very clear law on this. I don't care. If other laws would be better, makes no difference.
1: Yeah, and I, I think th- this is a point that bears underscoring in general. The Constitution provides for a way to change the Constitution. That's what the amendment process is. You know, opponents of... I think
0: eliminating the right to keep and bear arms would be a mistake, Yeah, but you're right. You could change it if we wanted to.
1: Yeah, and that, that's why I want to make it into you know a broader point here rather than a specific point. Opponents of strict constitutionalist approaches often caricature it as you know as though we're treating the Constitution like it came down from on high and is you know a sacred object that you know you must not question
0: no could not be further from the truth we're treating it like it's the law right because it is the law
1: and it made provision for how you can change it it made it you know reasonably difficult to change it on the assumption I think a good one that unless most people, like you know, a, a sufficiently broad swath of the country is willing to change it, that it shouldn't be changed because that's you know, potentially an indication that it shouldn't be.
0: I don't know that the constitution is perfect. I don't think yeah. the constitution has to be perfect. I think it's pretty dang good. I right. think it's better than any other constitution that's been tried up to this point in human history. I think that we would be hard pressed to write a better one today, but I don't think that it's perfect. I think that it could probably stand to be improved in some ways. I don't know what those would be, but I'm sure they're out there. It's not a perfect document. It doesn't have to be a perfect document.
1: Right. And until then, this is the fundamental point. It's not a valid option just to ignore it or to willfully twist it in order to get the outcomes you want.
0: Yeah, that's destructive
1: of the rule of law.
0: We posted a meme on our Facebook page. I think it's pretty good. It says, (laughs) you know, (laughs) why why do you need to have a concealed carry permit? And it says, why did Rosa Parks need to sit on the front of the bus? In a free country, there is no requirement to show need to exercise a right. And I think that makes the point very, very well. Obviously, it would be extremely offensive if anybody were to suggest that Rosa Parks needed to demonstrate need to exercise that right. And that right's not even listed in the Constitution, whereas the right to keep and bear arms is, as we said, it's probably about the clearest one in the Constitution. It should not get second-tier, second-class treatment from the rest of our rights. And that's what the court has now acknowledged. So it is a great day for second amendment rights in this country. And it's also a great day for something else. So that's our next (laughs) case that we're talking about.
1: Eloquently put, (laughs) eloquently put. All right, yeah, so this is, you know, this was not only, you know, a massive case, but also one that the decision was just published today, literally, you know, this morning. (laughs) before we were prepping for this episode so
0: but we got a little bit of a sneak peek a few months ago
1: that's true that's true so now, although it is
0: different it is and i think we're going to where we're currently working on getting a comparison you know like a microsoft word you can do compare changes and we're yeah. going to put up a comparison between the draft opinion and the final opinion on our website so if you want to look at that you're curious about the differences we'll throw them up on our website you can take a look there
1: yeah but those of you who have been listening for Basically, the whole time we've been doing this, we'll remember we did have an episode about the leak of the purported draft in this case. And what we said then, and I, I still stand by this decision, was that we wouldn't comment on the legal reasoning because it wasn't official. And it shouldn't have been, you know, subjected to political or, or excuse me, public opinion.
0: Yeah. Before the only possible court. effect of that can be to put political pressure on the court. But exactly. Now that there is an opinion of the court, it's open we can talk about it Yep. because that's that risk is gone now unless the court hears another case on this issue but to my knowledge there are none currently slated and there aren't going to be in the near future so we can talk about it
1: yeah now this also means that unfortunately i've been able to read some of the opinion but not all of it it is more than 200 pages um i got through probably about a quarter well, that, of that it. includes
0: the dissents and the concurrences and yes yes it. it does but i particularly appreciated justice thomas's concurrence here
1: i haven't read any of that so he,
0: he, he basically goes on a diatribe against substantive due process and says that created this whole problem in the first place i think the court should have gone a step further and gotten rid of substantive due process
1: all right we're probably going to need to delve into what that is but
0: it's, yeah, that's it's yeah. gonna come up discussing the, <laughs> the rest of the opinion here.
1: All right, fair enough. So I guess you know this will be sort of recapping some of what we talked about previously because while we didn't analyze this opinion or the, you know rather the draft of this opinion, we did talk about what Roe v. Wade and more importantly, in some ways, in most ways maybe, Casey v. Planned Parenthood, or is it? Excuse me, is it backwards? Is it the other way around? Planned Parenthood. I always v. get it. I always flip it. I think it's Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Whatever. Roe v. Wade and Casey, whichever order that goes in, were the precedents that, you know, basically set up the, well, until today, what was the jurisprudence on abortion in this country.
0: And it's gone. It's gone now.
1: <laughs> now, basically, the, the upshot... So what does that
0: mean? Does that mean that women are going to go to jail if they try to use contraception? <laughs> no um it
1: does not. oh it doesn't
0: no all oh, right i've been listening to twitter again
1: okay well
0: <laughs> anyway David doesn't like me saying the sarcastic stuff like that i apologize not not always
1: <laughs> anyway but roe v wade and casey the uh, the you know biggest picture upshot is that they recognized a constitutional right to have access to abortion at least under certain circumstances now in roe That was set out by a trimester scheme. So in the first trimester, you had certain rights with respect to abortion. Second trimester, other rights. And third trimester, still other rights.
0: Yeah. Casey. And as we mentioned, nobody was a big fan of Roe. Even the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not a big fan of Roe. She complained about its reasoning. Yeah. Grounded that right primarily in the right to privacy which is a right found in penumbras cast by the shadows of <laughs> other rights which are implied by the rights that are found by the rights stated in the constitution yeah um, that's you know a, those very firmly established rights
1: another way of saying that the court said in a different case that people have a right to privacy and then relying on that that you therefore have a right to access to abortion now
0: Casey, Casey said that's a bit silly. Yes. We're maybe privacy has something to do with it, but we're going to we're going to ground the We we agree, you know, there is a right to abortion. We just we're gonna throw out all the reasoning that got us to that right to abortion that came from Roe, and we're gonna ground it in a fourteenth Amendment right to liberty instead. Because you could construe that as a liberty, I suppose. Of a which sort. Which is pretty much the argument.
1: Yeah. But and you know, crucially, Casey got rid of the trimester structure that Roe had imposed and that in some ways sort of set up the most recent form of the conflict over abortion in the country because now instead of a sort of rigid structure here's what you can do in this time here's what you can do in this time it said that the states may not impose an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion prior to viability yeah and what that ends up you know Creating is a lot of conflict about what an undue burden is and concomitantly
0: a big fight yeah, about the Yeah, because you, you look at—ordinarily, if, if the court's looking at what constitutes an undue burden, as we talked about in our judicial philosophy episode, you would look at other law on that. Yeah. And if you were to do that, if you were to look at historically what was considered to be an undue burden on a woman's right to abortion, well, it was treated as manslaughter in many instances— right so evidently that was not thought to be an undue burden but apparently spousal notification is thought to be an undue burden so you know manslaughter would seem to be like less egregious
1: perhaps of a burden
0: <laughs> but, I, i'm sorry i mean more egregious of a burden than, than, than spousal notification but the court said the other way around because it what casey actually looked at there was a law that required among other things spousal notification and said yeah. that that did constitute And
1: I think one of the other key flaws in Casey's system for dealing with this was that it tied it specifically to viability. But viability, you know, basically the ability of a fetus to survive without being in the womb, is obviously going to vary under the circumstances and is going to vary even just with developments in medicine. You know, the better we get at medicine, the more viable a fetus is from an earlier stage. And so it caused just a very, you know, poorly structured mess of different viewpoints. And, and that
0: that was part of the basis for overturning it. Was exactly. Because th- there's a series of factors the court goes through when deciding whether or not to overturn past precedent. As we mentioned before, very, very rare that a court will overturn past precedent. I think we gave the stats on that in one of our videos. I believe it's a video called How does precedent work or something like that? It's one of our Ask an Attorney videos. Uh, You can take a look at that. We'll link it in the description because I don't want to go over all that again. Here, it's kind of a long video because it's a complicated (laughs) subject. But basically, courts really strongly defer to past precedent. Every one of the conservative justices was questioned by Congress about, will you respect precedent with respect to Casey and Roe? And all of them just kind of stated, well, it's precedent. I would treat it like precedent, which I guess the left sort of took that to mean they wouldn't overturn it. Um, but that's not actually what they said because there are circumstances in which it's appropriate to overturn precedent. So the first is going to be the nature of the court's error. Uh, We go over these in our video too, so I'm not going to explain them in too much detail here. But the second is the quality of the reasoning of the past opinion. The third is workability. Basically what that means is whether or not the past case provides a clear standard by which future cases can be adjudicated. I think that's really the one that dams Roe, in my opinion. Yeah, it's, It was just not a workable standard. It's not one that you could consistently apply. Uh, but the fourth one is effect on other areas of law. The fifth is reliance interests. That's the one that probably most strongly argued against overruling Roe. And that was really the only one that the respondents in this case relied upon. They basically argued that all of these women have been allowed to terminate their pregnancy at will for the past several decades. They may have planned their life around that. There's probably some truth to that. There are probably women who have made decisions with their life that they may not have made if they knew that they couldn't terminate a pregnancy. So that was probably their strongest one. It's the main one they relied upon. Uh, it's funny, relied upon the reliance interests. And yep. those are pr- those are pretty much the factors that the court will consider when deciding whether or not to overrule past precedent. And what Justice Alito does in his opinion is he goes through those factors and says that on balance, these definitely a way against Roe and Casey, and we're going to overrule Roe and Casey.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I want to take the opportunity here to point something out that may otherwise strike listeners as, as odd. You'll hear us talk a lot about how you shouldn't let sort of balance of interest kind of ideas govern how you interpret law. It's obviously very different, though, when we're talking not about an actual law and whether or not it's constitutional, and precedent, because precedent is basically a guidance for interpreting law, it isn't right. law itself.
0: It needs to be balanced against other legal considerations.
1: Right, as opposed to actual statutory or constitutional law, which you can't do.
0: Now, that. I would say the strongest factor is one that Justice Alito doesn't even mention, which is, does the opinion actually accord with the original law that it's supposed to be expounding? M-hmm. I guess you, you could say that that's part of the quality of the reasoning in the original opinion. Yeah. But as we mentioned, pretty much everybody, everybody serious at least, you know, not these folks that are protesting outside the Supreme Court, but everybody serious agreed that Roe's reasoning was very poor. Yeah. That was it, not disputed.
1: I think it's another one of these instances, like we were talking about earlier with the, you know, as you call it, the Roberts Care opinion, where the court sort of took upon it itself to shore up what it perceived to be deficiencies in the actual state of the law. Yeah, and,
0: and, you know, actually, the late Justice Ginsburg actually pointed out that she thinks the court's primary motivation and role was sort of a eugenics thing. Yeah. Yep. No, They were concerned specifically with minority groups and they wanted a right to abortion because they didn't want too many of them. Yeah,
1: there's yeah,
0: that's a Which, different. If that's true, that's obviously horrific.
1: Yeah, it's a different topic for a, probably a different kind of podcast. But for those of you who are curious, you know, you can you can look into you know the U.S. did tragically have its own eugenics movement, um, particularly in this sort of mid twentieth century, and that likely early did
0: twentieth. Yeah, but it, it came back a bit later on.
1: Early to mid, I would say, but at any rate, it did factor in probably, and I you know I think that that's not an unreasonable comment to make on. Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg's part,
0: excuse me. But it means the reasoning's probably pretty bad. And, and you know, likely, actually, what, yeah. what Justice Alito does here is he makes the direct comparison to Plessy v. Ferguson, which mm-hmm. was the case that originally upheld the concept of separate but equal, which was sort of the basis for Jim Crow laws for decades and decades. Yeah. Similar reasoning there, actually, that these people are fundamentally different, so we need laws that treat them differently. That was abhorrent when it was said, and abhorrent now.
1: Yeah, perhaps predictably, there's been a lot of, you know, not our usual kind of hot take. Not a lot of you know, sort of funny, ha ha stuff. But what you could describe as hot takes about this. You know, people firing off the cuff with you know some language that might be considered to be unmeasured. And uh, we'll play a clip for you right now. This is. Uh, I a was about to say justice. I was about to say justice Pelosi. It's not justice. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. <laughs> uh, said today. So at, this is at the most powerful rally.
0: person in Congress, arguably.
1: All right, so I'm going to play this. Hopefully you can hear this. We've had a couple issues with the tech on this before. If you can't, we'll
0: just have silence for like a <laughs> minute and then we'll talk about something you didn't hear.
2: Okay, fair enough. Yeah. That's a good idea. There's no point in saying good morning because it certainly is not one. This morning, the radical Supreme Court is eviscerating Americans' rights and endangering their health and safety. But the Congress will continue to act uh, to overcome this extremism and, pro- extremism and protect the American people. Today, the Republican-controlled Supreme Court has achieved their dark, mm-hmm. extreme goal of ripping away women's right to make it, their own dis- reproductive health decisions.
0: There are too many problems in this. I'm not going to remember all of them.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's there's The Supreme Court is
0: not Republican controlled. The Supreme Court's not a partisan body. This was not decided by the radical Supreme Court. It was decided by the only Supreme Court, the regular (laughs) one. This is actually not a sad day. It's actually a good day. Like a lot of these things she was saying were just wrong. (laughs)
1: Well, sad and, and good. You know, that's a slightly more complex question, I suppose. But certainly from the point of view of. Accurately expounding the law, not a bad day. <laughs> Actually, no, the op- opposite of a bad day. Well, and
0: that's, that's sort of what I wish I could get across. And if I can get across one point about this, it's going to sound really similar to my Second Amendment thing, but it doesn't matter what your opinion on abortion is. You could think abortion is great and everybody should get one. Yep. This was still a legally correct opinion. There is nothing in the Constitution about abortion. The yep. Constitution does not protect that right, and it never did. And we'll, we'll get the court more into was that. wrong to say that it did. We'll get more into that
1: in a minute, but let me, uh, let me resume because there's, there's a bit more to this.
2: Because of Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell, and the Republican Party, their supermajority in the Supreme Court, uh-huh. American women today have less freedom than their mothers. With Roe and their attempt to destroy it, radical Republicans are charging ahead with their crusade to criminalize health freedom in the congress be aware of this the republicans are plotting a nationwide abortion ban they cannot be allowed to have a majority in the congress to do that but that's their goal and if you read and again we're all studying all this but if you read what is in the very clear One of the justices had his own statement. It's about contraception, in vitro fertilization.
0: She means Justice Thomas.
2: Yeah. Family planning. That is all what will spring from the...
0: No, it was about none of those things. It was about substantive due process, which is what (laughs) Justice Thomas makes very clear in his opinion. It... Yeah, the right to abort. So we talk about substantive due process. What that means is basically those rights that you make up.
1: <laughs> Maybe fairly blunt, but I mean that's that's not necessarily inaccurate. But we should probably get a little more specific about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. For, first, let's talk about Pelosi's thing. You know, I find the the statement that women will have less freedom than their mothers had. I find that patently absurd. Women have more freedom after this decision came out because what that decision did, is it didn't make abortion illegal on a national level. Right. It returned the question to the states, where women, like men and everybody else that's voting, has a far more direct role in what their government is doing yeah. than they do at the federal level, or certainly than they do when the Supreme Court unilaterally decides something without the involvement of the political process at all. Yeah. So really, freedom has been returned to women where previously it had been stripped. So I, I find that to be you know totally bunk. That's just something she had to incite people. Uh, that's not, yeah. well, it doesn't reflect reality at all.
1: There's something in what she was talking about that I, I think deserves a little more particular attention. She said, and you know, as far as I know, this is not accurate, but she said that congressional Republicans were planning a national ban on abortions.
0: Now. That, I don't know, that's probably not true. Yeah. If they were to do that, as I just said, Okay, so, well, David, go on. Go ahead.
1: Well, what I was going to say is, you know, to make it clear, you know, to our listeners who may otherwise interpret this episode as, be us, you know, just being about being opposed to abortion. That's not what this is about. And if congressional Republicans attempted to impose a nationwide ban on abortion, from my perspective at least, and, you know, maybe you have a, a slightly different one, we'd have to oppose that as well because there's no constitutional authority to do that.
0: We, oh, babies aren't commerce?
1: <laughs> we were talking yeah, we were talking about the commerce clause earlier.
0: Yeah, well, babies you have to buy clothes for babies, <laughs> aren't they commerce?
1: There's very few powers. Isn't are... your
0: decision whether or not to have a child fundamentally a commercial decision? I think no. <laughs> I think absolutely not. I think anybody who claims that bearing children is a commercial decision. Is a monster, yeah, and that that person should not hold elected office. Yeah, so and, yeah, I would say if the Republicans in Congress try to regulate abortion, they are monsters because yeah. what they are claiming is that bearing children is a commercial activity. Because there's
1: there's basically. Almost. What else are they going to use? The yeah. post office? Yeah. The
0: ability to regulate the post office is what allows them to ban abortion? There are very what are they going to use? Yeah. There aren't that many powers listed in Article 1, Section 8.
1: Exactly. There are very few grounds. I mean, Roberts
0: had to really, really search in that Sibelius opinion to find one that kind of worked, and even there he had to make a basic Category A error. You'd, actually, I didn't even mention, so Roberts in that sorry to jump back to that, but Roberts in that opinion fails to mention that another provision about constitutional taxes is that any tax has to originate in a bill that comes from the House of Representatives. Right. Obamacare didn't. Right. The ACA came from the Senate. Yep. So we didn't even deal with that. Again, the powers of Congress are very specific in the Constitution. So there's nothing you're going to find in there that will uphold a, the federal power of Congress to ban abortion. Best you're going to get is the Commerce Clause. So, yeah, yeah you can bet Lex Rex Institute would oppose any such law tooth and nail. Because that is a gross usurpation of federal power.
1: Yeah. And, you know, fun little aside, this is one of the reasons for those of you who like a lot of, you know, mafia movies or shows, you may be familiar with RICO, which is basically the, you know, the interstate racketeering law. There's a reason that they rely on that so much to go after criminals because that is commercial and Congress actually does have power over that sort of thing. There's a reason why it's almost... Well, and they'll always
0: use, like, wire fraud or or Mm -hmm. mail fraud because it has to be within one of the things they can regulate. Good luck fitting childbearing into one of those. So, no, Pelosi's wrong on that. And if she, if for whatever reason, Republicans did try to do that, I think that would be very bad. Yeah. And we would oppose that just as vehemently as we opposed Roe v. Wade.
1: Yeah, because ultimately, from a constitutional point of view, I certainly can't see an alternative, maybe, you know, maybe there's something I'm overlooking and I'm, I'm a layman, you know, I'm not an attorney myself, but as far as I can make out, and I've thought about this a decent amount, seems like it's pretty definitively a state issue.
0: Just I, I want to just jump on something you said, David. The Constitution, even though it does use some legal terms, there's a reason that it's like seven pages. Mm-hmm. And that's because it's not just written for attorneys, you know, it's not like the tax code where you have to go to law, school, you have to study it for a really long time to know what it means. Constitution's pretty clear. Fair and enough. And David, I would say yeah. you've interpreted it just right. <laughs> There's nothing in the Constitution about this. Murder is a state law. Yep. Federal government can't prohibit murder. And manslaughter. They, they would have no authority you, to prohibit murder, manslaughter, anything yep. like that. Those are all state laws. If you genuinely believe that abortion is murder, you believe it's not a federal issue.
1: Yeah. Or manslaughter, which as you pointed out was or the manslaughter. historical classification. Yeah. Yeah, so again, you know the key point, and I, I know we're we're hitting this over and over again, but I think it really does need to be underscored, is that Roe v. Wade and the decision whether you know to abide by that precedent, overturn that precedent, ultimately does not have anything to do with the question of legal abortion or illegal abortion. No, what it has to do is with is constitutional jurisprudence, and Inter- Roe v. Wade. I'm sorry. Yeah, Roe v. Wade made the claim, and I think it's an extraordinary claim that there was a constitutionally protected right to abortion. There may be a right to an abortion, You know, depending on your, your perspective on that. People have different opinions about that. I think you have to work incredibly hard to find even the vaguest hint that it's found in the Constitution as opposed to somewhere well, else.
0: If, if there's a right to abortion, I don't know where you'd find it because it's not in the common law history. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in, if you appeal to a higher law, it's not in any religious text that I know of. I'm not sure where you would find it. That's my opinion. That's not the Lex Rex Institute saying that, but not sure where you'd get it. Yeah. So we, we were going to talk about substantive due process right. a little bit. So, yep. yeah, David, you messaged me about a particular phrase that was used in this opinion that you didn't like too much. Oh, right. Want to yeah. direct us to that?
1: Yeah. So, in the opinion on Dobbs, the opinion of the court drafted by Justice Alito says we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Constitution makes no reference to abortion and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including Fine so far. Yep, yeah, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the due process clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition, and quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Now, yeah. He's referencing here immediately a case called Washington v. Glucksburg, which I don't know anything about. But I, you know, I, the, the phrase concept of ordered liberty, which is a familiar one to me, but I, you know, only vaguely. So I decided to do some looking into it. Seems as far as we can By tell. By looking
0: into it, he means he asked me.
1: And then I, I, I Googled <laughs> it. Thank you. And I Googled it pretty hard. Thank you very much. I read like three pages of results.
0: <laughs> Did you Google it after you talked to me or before?
1: simultaneously with um, okay <laughs> but as, as far as we were able to determine, I, I said it came from palco was that right? yeah as far as we were able to determine the earliest instance was in palco v uh connecticut i want to say is.
0: yeah by the way glucksburg it was one on physician-assisted suicide saying that states ah. could ban physician-assisted suicide
1: okay anyway so palco v connecticut i believe was the the full name of that case or rather you know the. it's a
0: 1937 yeah. case which if you've watched our past episodes or You don't watch them you listen to learn that yeah when you've listened if you listen to our past episodes you know that that's shortly after president roosevelt sort of threatened the court into being terrible (laughs) uh, and they started (laughs) (laughs) issuing a a lot of opinions that were not strictly constitutional
1: yeah but essentially that case held that the right against double jeopardy you know we which we've also talked about very recently Yeah, it's
0: the right against participating in the second round of the TV show Jeopardy.
1: (laughs) The the right to not be tried for the same charge twice. Oh. Which is sometimes referred to as Double Jeopardy. I believe that inspired the name of that segment of the game show Jeopardy. I could be wrong. See,
0: I mean, I don't want to go on a whole side tangent on this. But if you use Erwin Chimerinsky's method of construction for the Constitution where he says that, you know, it says he, when referring to the president, therefore strict constructionists ought to say that only men can be president. If you use that, the double jeopardy clause would refer to the game show because it's the most (laughs) common colloquial usage.
1: Yeah. Anyway, we're not talking about the game show Jeopardy. We are talking about the idea that you have a right not to be tried for the same charge twice. Now, this case, the Palco case found that even though the 14th Amendment in theory extended all constitutional protected rights to the states yeah okay fine you, okay fine so <laughs> I'll re, I'll re- so there's right. a doctrine
0: called selective incorporation which basically means that so after the 14th amendment there was a question of whether or not the rights enumerated in the in the bill of rights applied only against the federal government or whether they applied against the states as well. Right. This goes through a whole series of cases. Notably, the Slaughterhouse Cases say that the Privileges or Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment saying that privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States may not be denied by the states. Yeah. Uh, they said you can't do it with that. I think that really would have been the appropriate way to incorporate those rights to the states, but court says you can't do that. So they end up relying on the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment saying that equal protection of the laws must inherently mean that these rights devolve upon people as citizens of states, not just as citizens of the federal government. Yeah. And Palco's one of those cases. It's looking at whether or not that applies to the Jeopardy clause. Uh, we call this doctrine selective incorporation. What that means is that the court justices basically get to pick which of the rights protected by the Bill of Rights are going to be incorporated to the states. And in this case, they give sort of a bunch of vague and ethereal language to the effect of, oh, we don't think we want to make this this right apply against the states because it's not one that is integral to the concept of ordered liberty.
1: Yeah, now we've, you know, sort of brought this up before but maybe, maybe not stated it this plainly. When a judge makes recourse to sort of philosophical values-laden language, that's often a pretty good indicator that they don't have much of a reason for ruling the way that they're ruling, and,
0: and you'll find that those cases will frequently be the subject of our of our um, hall of shame, hall of shame segment.
1: Yeah, yeah, Palco may in fact itself end up there, but
0: yeah, It'll so probably be down the road. Yeah, it's, not, it's, not. It's not a great one, but.
1: There, there, there are worse ones, yeah, for sure. But basically, the opinion... It's, it's, none,
0: a lot of Cardozo's opinions are like this.
1: Yeah. <laughs> basically, the opinion held that some but not all of the protections of the Bill of Rights would apply against states. And how you determine that is... <laughs>
0: Only if they're essential to... The concept
1: this, yeah. of ordered liberty, which has about as much specific content as we've given it thus far, which yeah, is not. If,
0: if yeah, because if you asked me is making people so they don't have to show up again and again for the same crime and keep being tried over and over for the same thing, is that essential to ordered liberty? I'd probably say yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I'd agree, but I'd also probably ask you a bunch of questions first about what do you mean by ordered liberty? What what does that mean? Sure. How are we deciding (laughs) that?
0: Just to be clear, the other, so we're being a little bit critical of some aspects of Justice Alito's opinion here. Really what we're being critical of, I want this to be very clear for our audience, Alito was actually fairly restrained yeah. in this opinion. Yeah. He didn't overturn a great deal of precedent, even a lot of really bad precedent, like this standard saying that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment only applies to things that are deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. He still relied on that. Yeah. That was a standard that he employed because he's actually exercising a great deal of restraint here.
1: Yeah, because that is in the precedent.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And I think that he would have been totally justified in overruling that as well. But he doesn't go that far. He restricts his ruling to the matter before him because he's a responsible judge.
1: And I, I think, too, there's a there's a sense and you know, this this opinion on its own is probably not enough to say this is, a, you know, definitely the way the court is going. But I get the sense that they're trying to sort of frame that idea, deeply rooted in history and tradition and implicit in the concept of order liberty, I feel like they're trying to reorient that a little bit at least toward common law history. So basically. well, And and that's
0: that first one, deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. Depending what is meant by that, I think that's a fine and acceptable standard. Right. For whether or not something is an inherent requirement of due process i i don't go as far as justice thomas on that i don't say you know every possible application of substantive due process is inherently wrong i think there is something to be said that due process actually does have certain substantive requirements but the way you recognize those substantive requirements is that they have to be things that were present under the common law yeah rights that were respected prior to the foundation of our constitution.
1: Yeah, and that both I think has the advantage of keeping in connection with legal history, which is very important in the common law system. Past decisions guide subsequent decisions. That's sort of the way it works. But also prevents you from just sort of making these appeals to just sort of abstract philosophical ideas, which, you know, yeah. all too often this idea, you know, that Things like ordered liberty have been screens for, basically.
0: And I, I'm not actually—I don't actually know that Justice Thomas disagrees with what I just said. Yeah. What I know is that he really doesn't like calling that substantive due process. Which fair enough, because that, that, that does have I, some baggage he, he, to it. He certainly believes that there are rights that precede our Constitution that were pre-existent to it. Right. And he believes that those rights are ones that we would be required to continue to respect in a constitutional order because Ninth and Tenth Amendments say that we have to continue to respect those things. But he really doesn't like the phrase substantive due process. I'm not as critical of that particular phrase because I think there are certain substantive requirements that have to be met in order to say that due process has been served. Yeah. Minor and, quibble. <laughs>
1: fair enough. <laughs> anyway, I can virtually... I'll let you
0: say, there's, there's ways you can disagree. You can have lots of disagreements and still be an originalist.
1: Yeah. And I can virtually guarantee that in future episodes of this podcast if nowhere else than in the hot takes section we will probably have to revisit this opinion <laughs> but for now and especially this opinion
0: in the hot takes
1: people's reactions to this opinion is what i mean.
0: oh yeah I, sorry i thought you meant the hall of shame again
1: no 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 no, no, no. not the hall of shame hot takes
0: yeah oh I, one more thing before we move on mm-hmm. i just wanted to read so we we heard nancy pelosi's comment she's a member of the legislative branch, right? So the political branch of government. Well, presumably the executive branch would be a bit more responsible, right? They're not gonna just openly criticize a decision of the court. They're not going to be openly and overtly political in their statements, especially something (laughs) like the Department of Justice that's charged with upholding and enforcing the laws of our country. They wouldn't want to directly undermine the integrity of our republic and the authority of the court, would they?
1: I think they would. You think they would? I think they would.
0: Well, let's look at what (laughs) Merrick Garland, head of the Department of Justice, said demonstrating why he was never qualified to be a member of the Supreme Court and why we are very glad that Justice Gorsuch ended up being appointed instead. So here is what um, justice, no, he will never be a justice. What (laughs) non-justice Merrick Garland said, he said the Justice Department strongly disagrees with the court's decision. This decision deals a devastating blow to the reproductive freedom in the United States. It will have an immediate and irreversible impact on the lives of people across the country and it will be greatly disproportionate in its effect, with the greatest burdens felt by people of color and those of limited financial means. do you believe, though, making this the official stance of the Justice Department? This is very clearly a political issue, yeah, one on which people have very strong political opinions, and I guarantee That not every person that works at the Justice Department agrees with this. Why on earth he'd want to make this the official stance of the Justice Department? I can't imagine a reason other than undermining people's faith in the integrity of our system.
1: Yeah, well,
0: and, you know, as we've said... Or just grandstanding, maybe. Or, or, like I said, trying to show us how how (laughs) right we were not to make him a justice. Well,
1: as we've said multiple times, but it's another thing that I think bears repeating as often as it becomes relevant, which is tragically all too often. If you're concerned that the justice system has gotten too political, the one thing you should definitely not do is try to further enmesh politics and the justice system.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, it, it's, he's talking out of both sides of his mouth here, yeah. and he's not the only one that does this. A lot of, I think a lot of folks, certainly on Twitter, certainly oh, yeah. public <laughs> opinion that I've heard out there on the news, they're doing the exact same thing. It's just particularly egregious to hear it from the head of the Justice Department. But you know, they'll talk it to both sides of their mouth because they'll say the court made a decision here that affects tons of people. It's a political decision. And then on the other hand, they certainly feel fine criticizing it yep. as a political decision of the court.
1: Yep. Yeah. And, you know, not as evident in, in Garland's remarks specifically, perhaps, but certainly plenty of people in the government plenty of people in the public eye have you know as we alluded to you know they've said basically the court should have taken into consideration our political opinion most people yeah. like it this way and therefore they should have done this that is just asking the court to be political nakedly
0: yeah yeah fr- frankly one other comment before we move on to hot takes which we got to get through quickly because we're over time again yeah but during the oral argument on Dobbs you know probably and this may have lost them the case, this may have lost the, uh, the pro-abortion side, this case. I believe it was Justice Alito um, was asking, because one of the arguments that the, that side was making was that there has to be some kind of change in order to overrule past precedent. You can't just overrule precedent because the court now disagrees with it. Something must have changed to necessitate that, that overruling. Yeah. And Justice Alito's question was, well, what if Plessy v. Ferguson, that's the case that uh, upheld separate but equal. What if Plessy v. Ferguson had been challenged the day after it came out? Should that have been overruled? And you know what the attorney for that side's response was? Yeah, I
1: did read a headline about this at some point, but I've forgotten what what was actually said.
0: What she said was the difference is that the South under Plessy v. Ferguson had no reliance interest Mm. what that's saying is that the south had in no way planned any of its policy no southerner had planned their life around the fact that segregation was in effect that couldn't be more false and that's exactly what justice alito said they had an entire way of life that was predicated on basically racial discrimination
1: yeah no,
0: you know there's a reason we refer to the jim crow era as such an egregious deprivation of people's rights is because it affected so many aspects of life yeah the well, reliance interest couldn't have been stronger
1: and i think it you know there seems to be a strange confusion there where she seems i think ultimately to be more realistically saying they had no good reason to rely on it
0: but and that's the problem with what she said yeah. is because at that point she's just made the case about your opinion on abortion Yep. Yep. Thankfully, Justice Alito as a responsible jurist did not take that bait and he decided it on solid legal grounds. But that's the last thing I've got to say about this case. <laughs> I thought that was worth saying. Totally dropped the ball on that, probably lost the case.
1: Possibly. Anyway, with uh, you know, it's always it's always awkward to transition from our big topics into hot takes because sure.
0: yeah well there's a hot take from the lawyer that, yeah. that was arguing the the Dobbs case let's let's hear some more hot takes yeah
1: cuz you know we have a name for it today we do not you know i think we may be at the, the limits of my creative prowess to come up with new names let me come up with one give okay. me a second give me i'll a second. give you 10 seconds
0: okay uh do do do, do just call do, it the skillet do, do, do. skillets are hot
1: okay fine the the fajita platter. Let's go with that.
0: The fajita. Yeah, the sizzling fajita platter.
1: Yeah, all right. That's great.
0: <laughs> it's so much better than what they're, you come up with.
1: They're hot, and they have an aroma to them. But yeah. in By this the case, way, the sizzler, I think,
0: one. does make those. Actually, I don't think they do. But,
1: <laughs> but restaurants <laughs> of a, a comparable sort of character do. Yeah. Anyway, now a couple of these I actually found, because, again, as I mentioned, I know you're, you're not a huge fan of us relying on Twitter, so I, I dug pretty, pretty deep. It's not that
0: I have anything against Twitter.
1: No, I think you do, but that's fine.
0: No, it's well, I, I probably do. It's not, it's <laughs> not that I against, have anything against using Twitter for hot takes.
1: No, but uh, <laughs> I found my way to, I think, just a comment thread on a blog post uh, where you know an attorney was talking about strange legal arguments you would heard, and he asked others to comment with theirs, and I came across this one. Where's this from? As I said, I think this was just a comment thread on a blog post, so people sharing their experiences with strange legal arguments.
0: So he says, I was recently involved in a case involving statutory interpretation of a vague statute. To prevail, we had to convince the judge the statute was vague, such that it was confusing to an ordinary person. Bear in mind that that was the legal standard. Opposing counsel argued that we should lose because we had not submitted an affidavit from someone of average intelligence who claimed that the statute confused (laughs) him or her. Somehow, in her, in her twisted understanding, she thought that that was an element of proof rather than a legal standard. I guess I need an affidavit from a reasonably prudent person on every tort claim I <laughs> file. That's pretty funny. I, I don't really expect our audience to know why that's hilarious. Well, but
1: I I do like the idea. Yeah. You know, this is probably an opportunity to talk about reasonable person standards that's, in general. But I love yeah. the idea that you would need to find someone of average intelligence somehow known to be of average intelligence and in a legal what, what they did way. here, what they
0: actually did here is they confused a legal standard with a factual standard. Mm-hmm. So we've discussed the difference between law and fact before on this podcast, but questions of law are questions that go to a judge, they're you know does what happened actually constitute a violation of this law? Does it fall within the purview of what this law pertains to? Questions of fact are did this happen? You know, is this actually true? Juries decide questions of fact. Yeah. You submit affidavits for questions of fact because you're trying to verify whether or not something happened. You're not trying to verify whether or not somebody of average intelligence thinks a particular thing. That's a legal <laughs> question. A judge is supposed to analyze that as though he's looking at it through the lens of a person who's a, of reasonably average intelligence.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I do, I, I would love to live in a world, I wouldn't actually love this, but I think it would be amusing to live in a world where you could be sort of... You an, could pay uh, it as an expert witness to yeah. you
0: reasonably. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> you could make a living as a guy <laughs> be like, you know, I'm a normal sort of guy, not too dumb, not too smart. Ask me questions and I'll tell you what I think about them. And then that by, gets by the way, evidence.
0: being an expert witness is about the sweetest gig you can get. <laughs> <laughs> They're paid very, very well. It's very expensive to hire expert witnesses. So, yeah, if you could just get a person of reasonably average intelligence to testify and be an expert witness, that would be a pretty good career (laughs) for somebody of average intelligence.
1: Or who can convince someone else that they are of average intelligence. That's my plan. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You've got to have another witness testify that person is, in fact, of average intelligence.
1: <laughs> yeah. Th- I think that, that's sort of getting at the, the problem I see with this, is how do you actually verify this person is of average
0: intelligence? No, You'd you need an expert. you need an expert in psychology to say, <laughs> I've certified this person is of average intelligence.
1: Experts all the way down. Yep. Anyway. All right. Let's go on to our next one. This, I, so I'm, I'm doing a Twitter sandwich here. I have two that are not Twitter. This one is Twitter. We'll go back to non-Twitter in a second.
0: Okay. This is from Brooke. And she says, LAPD perjury investigation report against Amber Heard and Rocky Pennington. Pennington?
1: Yeah, I guess Pennington.
0: Amber Heard's lawyers just stated to the court, it doesn't exist. Well, here it is.
1: And then the key part.
0: And then someone responded, F. Zarnock responded, there is not a law against perjury. That's not true. Actually, the law (laughs) against perjury is called perjury. (laughs) Perjury. That's that's the law against perjury. (laughs) Yeah. So that's not right. I do find it. (laughs) It's like saying there's no law against you know Section 1211 of the Penal Code. No, that that would be Section 1211 of the Penal Code. Yeah, that's that's the law against. I
1: I do also find it amusing that the first person who you know, in I, I have you know, I did not really pay a lot of attention to the Amber Heard trial. It wasn't of that much interest to me. I, what?
0: You, know, I you, <laughs> not, uh, you don't follow the celebrity gossip? Not really. I have, I no. watched almost none of it. Yeah. There were a few things where I'd say, you know, judge totally owns Amber Heard's lawyer or something like that. Yep. I, mean, I have to click on that. I got to see that. And then it would just be like, did you submit the motion on the appropriate date? Yeah, I submitted it on the appropriate date. The motion is granted as submitted. Yeah. Like, that's just... A conversation with Yeah. Like, that's a mean judge, boy. You gotta you gotta hear some of the hearings that I'm at. Well, judges are a lot meaner to I think, whether it's me or my opposing counsel than that. I think that's a result of a lot of I, I had one last week where I was where I was in the hearing and it literally started where he said, Did you just hear the hearing before yours? And I said, Uh yes, Your Honor. And he said, You heard how mean I was to that lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh yes, Your Honor. But well, you're not gonna act like him, are you? <laughs> uh No, Your Honor? <laughs> Well, good. Yeah, there you go. And he was was fine after that. I thought that was a very strange way to start a hearing. Yeah,
1: I I do think that a lot of that (laughs) clickbait stuff about the Herd-Depp trial, beyond just being a way of of garnering views, I think, was a lot of people who just normally would never have any interest in in legal proceedings, not being quite sure what to make of it, and finding significance where it wasn't necessarily.
0: Or people whose interest in legal proceedings is limited to things like Better Call Saul.
1: Yeah, fair enough.
0: I also, I, last comment on this one. I, I saw, there was a clip I saw, I did not, not watch the show, but there was a clip I saw in that show, which we should do that kind of thing for hot takes, by the way, find like things from TV shows and movies to react to. Fair enough. I think yeah. that'd be fun. But uh, there was one that I saw where he basically planted an electronic device yep. in a guy's pocket where the guy was saying that he had some kind of unique sensitivity to electron, like EM emissions or something like that. Yep. And then like, you know, he points that out and it's supposed to win him the, the oral argument or whatever.
1: Yeah, to be fair that was a cross examination. That was a bar hearing. It wasn't actually in court, but
0: um Okay. But I'm it's pretty still pretty sure that standard rules of evidence are going to apply. Yeah. I think it would have been hilarious if that scene ended with you strike out from the record that evidence is excluded. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's probably what should have happened, but instead that was, you know, kind of the climax of that season and One of the major subplots of that show, actually. Fun Uh fact,
0: the law tends to be a lot more boring than what you see in TV shows. You can't generally (laughs) pull stunts like that because it turns out those stunts aren't actually very good at getting us to the truth. Right. Uh And, you know, over the past 2,000 years, as we sort of like honed and refined our legal system, we've concluded not the best way to do that. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, let, last, it's got to be a lot more boring
1: Last remark on this one before we go to our last one I did find it amusing also That the person who is just flat out wrong about this Also happened to misspell perjury Whereas the person
0: who Oh, I didn't even notice that, you're right, he did It's perjury Yeah,
1: yep. it's yeah P-E-R, not P-U-R Anyway
0: It's like a cat perjury I guess that would be two R's
1: <laughs> Yeah, alright, last one Here we go, like I said Twitter sandwich. This one is, again, not Twitter, but from that same blog post comment thread, I believe.
0: Okay. so this is some a law student saying it's a story that his law professor told him. Yeah. Defendant busted for possession of narcotics. They were in the pocket of his leather jacket. He argues the search was illegal because with his buttery smooth leather jacket, there's no way the officer would have felt drugs in his pocket during the pat down. So he shouldn't have reached in the pocket to find the drugs in the first place. Judge asks if the jacket is the one he is currently wearing in court. It was. Judge asks to feel his pocket and the pockets. Defendant hands it to the bailiff. Judge finds more drugs in the pocket. Needless to say, it didn't go well for him.
1: I'm curious as oh my to whether gosh, this... Don't, would, do I'm don't do that. Don't do that.
0: That's not smart. I'm
1: curious as to whether, you know, obviously, yeah, I think we can agree. It wasn't the wisest move. Don't bring your drugs to court, and certainly... I want to know
0: if he was able to feel them through the jacket, because you know, the, um, the rule on that is that if, if they're performing a search, yeah. if it's just a stop-and-frisk sort of search, mm-hmm. they can't specifically palpitate things that are in your pockets, Mm -hmm. it's got to be just a pat-down, you know, quick pat-down on the exterior of their body. Now, all the time, the issue will be whether or not the police officer could have actually felt the thing by just patting the guy down or whether he had to actually palpitate it. So that, I'm sure, was the issue here. So I sort of wonder how the judge found the drugs. Was he actually reaching into the pocket or just giving the jacket a pat-down?
1: Yeah. I kind of
0: hope it's the latter.
1: My question here was how this actually, you know, is this, you know, something that could reasonably do- be done within the evidentiary rules? You know, like what what would actually come about from this if this, you know, assuming this happened. It's
0: authenticated. He said it was his jacket.
1: That's fair. Yeah. and
0: yeah, assuming, that, That's evidence. There's no problem with that.
1: All right. Fair enough. So I, I was curious how that would work. But then, you know, and, you know, maybe this is just something that wouldn't it's, have it's, been. So,
0: so the prosecution could object. Mm-hmm. But they'd have no reason to here. because The other reason they could object is they've had no ability to inspect this evidence prior to its presentation in court. Yeah. But there's no reason they would object here. It only benefits them.
1: Right. Now, I'm curious, too, if you have any insight on this. Maybe this is just something that, you know, you wouldn't normally need to consider. But I guess what I'm asking is, like, what would the process then be of tacking on additional charges, the, you know, on this basis? Separate, separate trial. Yeah, separate you trial. You couldn't do it in the same that's, trial. That's what I would yeah. assume, but... I, I do find that, you know, to be a very interesting circumstance. In, in
0: fact, like, at that point, if I were defense counsel, I would probably say I, I moved to have the evidence of the drugs you just found excluded as unduly prejudicial to my client. Fair enough. Because the standard is whether their they're prejudice to the to the defendant yeah, the original is charge. Uh, outweighed yeah. by their probative value. Mm-hmm. And I would say here, you know, there's evidence that he has drugs on him per- right now, it's, but it doesn't have much evidence about whether or not he had drugs at the time. Yeah. So... Probably try to get them excluded. Yeah, move but to suppress. You, the jury's already seen it, though. <laughs> Even if you get it excluded. You might be preserving the issue on appeal. Because when when a, an appellate judge looks at the case, they only look at the factual record. They right. don't look at everything that actually happened in, at trial. So if the jury has a decision that is clearly wrong, given the exclusion of that evidence, you could potentially get it overturned on appeal. But I don't think you're going to win your jury trial at that point. Yeah, well, and... I Remi- think you lost.
1: <laughs> Reminding the audience again that nothing we're saying here is legal advice. I feel like, as you know, a general rule of thumb, I might suggest that it's probably unwise in most circumstances to bring your drugs with you to your trial for drug possession.
0: Well, what if you need a quick pick-me-up <laughs> so that you can testify better?
1: Probably still shouldn't do that.
0: <laughs> you know I'm, I'm going to agree with that one I don't think you ought to bring your drugs into court
1: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> leave leave your illegal substances at home when you're being tried for anything
1: yeah I think that 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 seems right in again in in most circumstances I can envision can't necessarily tailor it's going that. to be
0: very very <laughs> difficult even if the jury knows they're not supposed to consider yeah. that evidence when they're deliberating. It takes a rare sort of person to consciously exclude that and consider <laughs> yeah. the rest of your facts in isolation of that.
1: Yeah, especially considering it's by the defendant's own testimony, the same jacket.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, actually, maybe it proves that he's right because he forgot if, if that it was this, in there. <laughs> yeah, you, you could actually follow up with additional questioning. You could say, were the drugs that I just found present in your jacket when you were being searched by this police officer? And then you would show, look, the police officer was not able to feel drugs through this jacket. Clearly, they unlawfully searched the pocket where they did find the drugs. Yep. <laughs> I don't know that anybody. That's actually, you know, it's, it's not an invalid argument. It's not a terribly convincing argument to a jury. Yeah. So.
1: That's, that, you know, that is something you need to bear in mind with a jury trial is that you may not be able to perfectly persuade them to ignore all the stuff they're supposed to ignore.
0: Yeah, they are not machines, and we don't want them to be machines.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> We're way over, David.
1: Yeah, we are, so we should probably wrap up here.
0: I, I think we can stand at least a little bit longer episode for this one. There's some major issues that came yeah. through the court. We apologize, folks, for wasting so much of your day. Hopefully <laughs> you didn't plan out specific time to listen to this. If you did, then I doubly apologize. Yeah. But do check out our store on our website. That's lexrex.org.
1: All that being said, thank you for listening. We hope to you know, have you join us again next time.
0: All right. Good night, everyone.
1: See ya.